Today is Transfiguration Sunday. The story of the Transfiguration is an important story in the Bible. It's repeated in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. There's so many things that we could talk about in this story. We could talk about how Jesus is like Elijah and Moses. We could talk about how Jesus, glowing from head to toe with the glory of God, confirmed his divine nature. We could talk about how Peter, like us, wanted to keep God in a box, to institutionalize the work and movement of the Holy Spirit so that we can control her. We could talk about how dim-witted the disciples and we often are. We could talk about how we prefer to keep our religious life inside a building, inside a tent, so that it doesn't infect, invade the rest of our lives and compel us to go out and deal with the very real suffering in the world. We could talk about why Jesus told them not to say anything as they were coming down the mountain. We're not going to talk about any of that today. Today, we're going to talk about why did Jesus go up the mountain and take Peter, James, and John with him in the first place? And why might we want to go up the mountain with them? So let's pray and ask God to entice us up the mountain of God so that we might have an encounter with the living God that transfigures us and allows us to claim our wholeness in God and then descend down the mountain to do the work that God has called us to do. Let's pray. God, we are absolutely exhausted. We're exhausted from the fight in the United Methodist Church. We're exhausted from hearing the ongoing injustice against immigrants in the criminal justice system, against others in the nightly news. We're exhausted from the work. We need to rest. We need to remember. We need to be renewed, re-inspired, reinvigorated. And so God, we ask you to call us up the mountain, to give us the courage to set that aside for just a little while and go sit with you, see your face, hear your voice, and know again who you are and who we are and the power of God that is within us. Speak to us this morning with a voice that creates a longing in us to seek you even as we are sought by you. That we might be all that you've called us to be and do all that you've called us to do. For we ask it in the name of our Savior, even Jesus the Christ. Amen. So this is an important story. And it occurs in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And each of them tell the story a little bit differently, depending on the audience that they're talking to and what the needs of that audience are. So let's 
take the story of the transfiguration that we've heard this morning out of Matthew's gospel and set it in context. So Matthew's gospel is written for a Jewish audience and he wants them to know that this person, that Jesus is the Messiah of the Jews, the one who's been promised from of old, who all the prophets pointed to, who was to be the prophet greater than all prophets, but like Moses and Elijah. Matthew takes Jesus' genealogy all the way back so that we can trace the line of how God has been moving throughout the history of Israel in order to bring Jesus into the world as the promised one who will restore Israel to Israel's intended purpose, which was to be a light to all the nations. And as we see in the other Gospels, when Jesus is about to begin his earthly ministry, he goes to the River Jordan where he is baptized, publicly confirming God's call on him, who God says that he is. And he comes out of the River Jordan, and the Spirit descends and says, This is my beloved Son. And then the spirit drives him into the wilderness. Wait, there's work to be done. But first, there must be wilderness. The spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness where he fasts and prays for 40 days and 40 nights and wrestles with the Satan. The Satan is the accuser with that voice that we all hear that tells us we're not who God says we are. We can't do what God calls us to do. God is not who God says God is, and Jesus has to wrestle with that same accuser in his time of prayer and fasting with God. And when the end of the 40 days comes, Matthew tells us that the angels come and minister to Jesus. And he comes out of the wilderness knowing who God is, knowing who he is in God, and knowing what God has called him to do and what the power he has that is within him to do it. And he begins to heal the sick and cast out demons and proclaim that the kingdom of God has come near for all of humanity and creation, not just the privileged and the powerful. And that sets some folks on edge. And after three years, they're ready to be done with this guy who keeps challenging the injustice in the world, both within the religious community and the political community and the social economic community, and calling it back to God's intention so that everyone has a place and can thrive. At the end of those three years, Jesus heads to Jerusalem, knowing that a cross awaits him. And as they were going, he says to the disciples, who do people say that I am? Some say, you're Elijah, come back. Some say, you're John the Baptist, back from the dead. And then Jesus looks at them and says, who do you say that I am? And Peter gets it right, like we do occasionally. (laughs) You're the Messiah, the promised one. Jesus says, you have said rightly. And then he begins to tell them how the Messiah, using the scriptures, showing them, must suffer and be crucified. No, Peter's, uh uh-uh. No, says Peter, no. 
Jesus rebukes him and says, get behind me, accuser. Because Peter is trying to derail Jesus from God's call on his life. Make Jesus think he can't do what God's called him to do, that he's not who he is. And so Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, the accuser. And then he explains to the disciples how difficult the path ahead will be. We know later in Matthew just how difficult it was for Jesus to embrace that path because we're told later that he takes these same disciples, Peter, James, and John, into the Garden of Gethsemane at night and he wrestles with God over the future that God has called him into and whether or not he can actually go through with it. And he sweats so profusely that his sweat is blood. The path ahead will be hard. And the hard word to us is that God says, if you're going to follow Jesus, the path to resurrection is through the cross. And so with that, waiting him and the disciples, he takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain. He needs strength. He needs renewal. He needs to remember He needs a direct encounter with the God who sent him and who alone gives him and us life and to remember who he is and what the power of God is within him as well as within us to do this thing that is in front of him that will be exhausting, that will take everything that he's got. And as they go up the mountain... Jesus has that encounter, and he begins to glow with the glory of God, that life, breath, spirit in which we all live and move and have our being. And in that moment, in that presentness of God, Jesus' presence to that, God fills him with the glory and the power of Almighty God. And along comes Moses. Moses joins him. And Moses knows about going up the mountain because Moses has had to do that too. Moses had his life all set. Moses was in Midian. He was herding sheep for his father-in-law. He had a wife and he had children. And life was just fine the way it was. And then one day he sees this bush burning and it's not consumed. And rather than going on about all the busyness that was in front of him and the tasks he had to do, he steps aside to see. He draws apart and he has an encounter with the living God who says, Moses, what are you doing over here in Midian? I got work for you to do. And he sends him to the one place he really doesn't want to go, back to Egypt. And Moses objects, I can't go back there, I can't, I can't, I can't do that. God says, I'll be with you, I am, you are the one I have chosen, I will be with you and you will rely on my strength. And he sends Moses back and Moses has to take on Pharaoh and has the gall to ask Pharaoh to release his entire economic support system to let all the slaves go. And he's exhausted from that struggle. He also has to deal with the Israelites who are like, yeah, no, we're not doing that. I mean, we got this down. It may be 
not the perfect system, but we know how this works. We have food, we have a house. Yeah, we're not going out there. We're not taking a step of faith out to something we have no idea where, where you're taking us or what's going to happen. And he has to deal with that too. But finally, he gets everyone out of Egypt. And then they come to the Red Sea, and he turns around, and here's injustice in hot pursuit. And he has to get them all across the sea safely. And he does. Finally, he's got him camped in the wilderness around Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. And he knows he's got to go up. He's exhausted. There is so much work left to be done to get these folks to the promised land. And so he does. He goes up. And he spends 40 days and 40 nights fasting and praying in the presence of God. And God gives him a set of rules to bring down because he's got a people that he needs to help reshape who they believe themselves to be because for 400 years they've been taught they're slaves, that they have no power, that they can't be a force in the world. They could actually welcome others. And so the Ten Commandments would essentially love God and love neighbor. You don't hurt your neighbor by doing thing, these things and you show your love for God by doing these are given to help shape them into who God says they really are, who God's called them to be. Moses comes down the mountain and they've said, yep, yeah, no, enough of this. We're going back to Egypt. And they built the golden calf. They're worshiping in the way they did back then because they know how to do that. And this other stuff is too scary. Moses smashes the commandments, enters the chaos, enters the confusion, enters the argument about what's going to happen next and finds himself exhausted all over again. He has to go back up the mountain. And when he gets up the mountain this time, he begs God to see God's face. So he knows he can't do this work unless he's sat a while in the presence of God. And so God sets him in the cleft of a rock and says, I'll allow you to see my back. I'll pass by you. And that's enough. Because when Moses encounters the living God on the mountain, he comes down glowing such that the Israelites are afraid of him and make him covered up. Empowered, filled with the power of God to do what God's called him to do because now he's got to get folks who aren't sure they want to go to the promised land knowing he doesn't get to go with them. He's going to have to lay his life down for something he will never experience but lay it down so that others can. And he does that by drawing aside, by going up the mountain, by listening to God, by sitting in God's presence until he remembers who God is, who he is, and what the power of God is that is already within him. So Moses is there with Jesus cheering him on. And here comes Elijah. Elijah knows about going up the mountain too. He's drawn aside many times, and on one time he goes up Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, to take on the prophets of Baal, who are telling people they're less than, who are leading people into a worship that's non-inclusive, that doesn't have love, it's, it's core. And so he puts them to the challenge, and he says, build a sacrifice, soak it with water, 
and see if your God can send down fire. And of course they fail. And then he, he builds one. He says, keep soaking it. Keep soaking it till it's literally drenching with water. And then in the power of God, he calls down fire from heaven and it consumes the altar. It hasn't rained in three years in Israel. And Elijah begins to pray on the mountain. There's a little tiny cloud way out there. And he sends his servant running. Is it coming? It's going to rain. It's going to rain until finally there is a deluge. Now Jezebel, the wife of King Ahab, is not happy because she's a follower of Baal. And so she decides she's going to have Elijah killed. And so Elijah, in his fear and in his exhaustion from the battle and the work that God has called him to, goes up the mountain, sits in the stillness and the darkness of a cave. He's looking for God in the earthquake. He's looking for God in the wind. He's looking for God in the fire of a thunderstorm. But it's not until he gets really, really still. The actual translation is that Elijah met God in the severe silence. And from that place, Elijah remembers who God is, remembers who he is, and is renewed and strengthened to go down and do the work that God's called him to do in the community and to train Elisha because he's got to pass this on. So Elijah and Moses come and surround Jesus in this moment because Jesus has to come down off the mountain too. And he's got to face the cross. And he's got to prepare his disciples to do the same thing. And that's why he brought them up the mountain to begin with. I was blessed to have two very different parents but who both believed in this disciplined rhythm of prayer, of drawing apart in order to enter back in. My mother is an intercessor. We'll talk about her later in Lent and that discipline. My father was a listener who knew how to get still before Almighty God. I've told some of you this story before, but he would get up an hour before dawn every day Every day that I can remember, it was still dark outside. He'd come down the stairs in the quiet house, fix a cup of coffee. He smoked a pipe. There was a couch in the den that faced the east window. And he would sit there with his coffee and his pipe and watch and listen and be present to the God who had created him in the silence as the light began to filter through the trees as dawn broke. He had a wiggly daughter upstairs who was told she couldn't get up until she knew somebody else in the house was up. And so the moment I smelled that pipe, I would slip down the stairs and nestle into the crook of his arm, content just to be in the silence in his presence, even as he was content to be in the presence of God in silence, renewing his strength, being reminded of who he was and what the power of God was within him. As I grew older and was actually up late enough, I would come home and see him sitting in the darkness beside the fire doing the same thing. Sometimes he'd be in the living room with just a candle and that old stereo console 
with music playing. On Saturdays, he would be out around the roses, digging in the soil, breathing life into that soil as he let God breathe the life back into him, into this body that had been made from that same soil, renewing his strength. My father died 10 days after Jack and I were married, and I still miss him at times terribly. But he lives on in me in this discipline that he passed on of stepping aside to be still so that I can enter back into the fray because my dad would go from those places of silence to take on the clan who were actually members and leaders in churches in the South and to march with Martin Luther King Jr. and to work with the mentally ill who were being warehoused in institutions to try to restore their dignity and their sense of identity and worth. And he took his own failures and used those to open a space for others who saw themselves as failures, who had been cast aside and make room for them to reclaim their identity, to know their redemption in God. And when cancer took him and he fought for 13 years, he opened that up too so that other people would have a partner in the struggle. And the only way he was able to sustain that was by drawing apart every day sometimes both at night and in the morning. My favorite hour of the day is still the hour before dawn. It is in that stillness that I reclaim my father and I meet my God. Because we've got work to do and we're exhausted. And there's a cross in front of us. And it's not going to be easy. And so during this Lent, God is inviting us to go up the mountain. To set aside a time every day. In whatever way you can get still to listen. Maybe it's digging in the garden. (laughs) Maybe it's sitting quietly with music. Sitting as I do, outside in a chair in the dark and watching the dawn rise. God wants to meet us there so that we can be refreshed, so that we can be renewed, so that we can remember who God is, so that we can remember who we are in God, so that we can remember that the power of God that is already within us is enough and we can walk through the cross together into resurrection. But I can tell you, if Elijah and Moses and Jesus had to do it, so do we. So I'm asking you to consider committing for 40 days to take some time. Crawl into the crook of your heavenly father, mother, parents, arm in the stillness and just be present. You don't have to experience anything. You may feel like it's a waste of time. I can tell you, I just came from my mother's, and most of the time we just sat there together. Didn't say anything. She had little she could say. Couldn't do anything. But that was a holy space. And I came to know my mother in new ways. 
And so shall we know God and be known by God. I invite you up the mountain for Lent. In the name of the Creator, Redeemer, and Sustainer. Amen.